I know. You thought I was never going to do one of these again. <laughs> but we had a weird early spring in Idaho, and I got crazy. And I put in two cherry trees, one sweet and the other sour, two apple trees, a gala and a honey crisp, two cherry bushes, which I didn't even know was a thing, an Asian pear tree, which I'm really looking forward to, four blueberry bushes, three huckleberry plants, a Japanese maple, and entirely gutted and replanted the strawberry patch, uh, and two new garden patches, plus all the work that didn't get done last fall. So now all I have left is a honeysuckle vine to put in the ground. And let me tell you that my knees and my back haven't been happy for the last two months because of it, but my chiropractor sure has. But like I said, I'm done now, and this is a one-time thing, and now in five years I will have a ton of fruit and hopefully no grandchildren to share it with right away because I'm not ready for that yet. But we're finally going to start Mark chapter 15. And we have seven broadcasts left to go in the series, which should take us just past my 53rd birthday, unless I take another break or I chicken out and decide not to do a teaching on the disputed verses of chapter 16. But I think that'll be fun to tackle the controversy. You know, we're all grown-ups here, and we can handle it without going ballistic. I figure if you guys were going to be upset about something like this, you would have left as soon as you found out that I'm a woman. You knew that, right? Anyway, fair warning, guys. I'm about to start teaching, but I promise not to take any sort of unauthorized authority, no hypnosis to trick you into listening to me, no blackmail, no guilt trips. You can hit that off button and I will never even know about it. Okay. Enough foolishness, let's just look at this week's section of scripture where the topic is Pilate and Barabbas and Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, you know, within the praetorium, very early in the morning on the day he was about to be crucified, and there's nothing funny about this. So we've gotten the levity out of my system. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they're bringing against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came and up and began to ask Pilate, to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man... You call the king of the Jews. And they cried out again, Crucify him. 
And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Boy, that's rough. It, you know, this is a hard chapter. Much harder than the last one. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have like actually seven years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, and that's called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and like 16 other platforms. And um, transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com if you have kids. I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. And again, that's also available just about on every podcast platform. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version. But, you know, you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. I am not the Bible version Police, you know, uh, and a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And I'm going to be honest here. Whew, this is a hard section of scripture for me to teach because I have trouble detaching myself from the reality of what my master endured for us, for me. But honestly, you know, I am incredibly shocked when people are so focused on like pseudepigraphic works like Enoch and Jubilees or Gnostic stuff like the Gospel of Thomas or the Pseudepigrapha of James. Uh, no, it's the Proto-Evangelium of James. Um, and all that when they often can't even talk in depth about the three most important days in the history of mankind. You know, this is where we were bought. Um, where sin and death were conquered, and when the new creation existence was, you know, inaugurated, kicked off, you know. So, you know, let's get to it. We need to understand this. It's more important than all this other stuff that people get upset about and divide over. Oh, okay, so the high priest's personal Sanhedrin, made up of his cronies, met in the middle of the night, on the high Sabbath, no less, and they attempted to convict Yeshua of blasphemy based on the notion of those times that to speak against the temple or to speak of destroying the temple was tantamount to speaking against Yahweh. Now, obviously, the witnesses were a hot mess. You know, this is all review here. Um, they were they were a hot mess. Um, and no one could agree. And so they couldn't get that charge to stick. But when Yeshua answered the question, you know, asked, according to an oath formula in the name of Yahweh, whether or not he was the Messiah, 
the son of the blessed one, well, you know, let's just say that not only did he answer in the affirmative, but he also used very specific judgment language where he claimed that they would see him coming in judgment. Um, that's what coming on the clouds meant to them, because that's how it is used throughout the Hebrew scriptures, all right? The Old Testament. For Yeshua to be claiming to be coming as judge against the high priest and the chief priest by the standards of that day was absolutely blasphemy. But there was one problem. Pilate wasn't going to care about that in the slightest. He'd probably even chuckle about it because he hated the Jews with a passion. Okay, so let's start out with um, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, remember we talked about the, you know, quote-unquote trial the night before, you know, actually being just an informal legal tribunal? Well, this is where we see that it it is definitely what happened because despite condemning Yeshua as a blasphemer and deciding that he deserved death, um, they didn't have the authority to do anything about it. They had to convene a meeting of the elders, scribes, and the entire council. Not an informal Sanhedrin, but a consultation. A symbolion, a, a boule, okay? The Greek word that translates the Hebrew bait din. The highest ecclesiastical court of Israel and the only ones who could condemn anyone of a capital crime. Now, based on Yeshua's confession, all right, he was absolutely guilty in the eyes of the majority of the leadership to speak against the leaders of Israel, you know, boldly and without repentance was to speak against Yahweh himself in their minds. So nothing had changed since the days of the prophets who were often killed for doing the exact same thing. Only they didn't claim to be able to sit in a throne at the right hand of Yahweh himself. And so they did condemn him of blasphemy, but had no power whatsoever to put him to death. Now, one thing I want to address is the idea that the author of Mark is saying that the entire council condemned him as guilty, but it doesn't say that. It only says that the chief priests held a consultation with everyone. Uh, there could have been a great many dissenters, men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, but... They did decide that he was worthy of being handed over to Pilate, and the only reason they would do that was for the purpose of having Yeshua put to death. Because only Pilate had that authority, and so now things were about to get really complicated. And I should mention that this meeting would have been really, really early, somewhere like between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning. Um... Because on festival days, the court of Pilate was packed to the gills with people wanting audiences and to bring their concerns to him. Um, he was only ever in Jerusalem on festival days. Otherwise, he lived in Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the Sea, at the Roman headquarters there. 
And it was a much more modern city. Very Hellenistic and uh, not a religious center with people who would respond fanatically whenever he would pull one of his stunts. Pilate would hold court from sunrise until noon and... Of course, he would grant audiences to the most honored petitioners first. So, like, you know, the high priest and the chief priest, they got first dibs. And it was quite a walk from the Herodian quarter of the upper city over to the Praetorium, which was north of Herod's palace, in the northwest corner of the upper city. And I'm going to be putting in a lot of links with the transcripts and maps So, however, if they moved the hearing to the Temple Mount and the Chamber of Hewn Stone, which is where the court was required to meet to decide capital cases, um, not in the Torah, but um, as per Jewish law, all right? Um, then the Praetorium might have been um, located at the Fortress Antonia, you know, which was physically connected with the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. Although, you know, I wonder if they would bring someone in his condition near the temple. And we should be used to this word by now, but they handed him over to Pilate. Paradidomi. That word means to hand someone over and generally to the Gentiles for judgment. Now, unless Jesus was crucified, they wouldn't ever get rid of him. They had to not only kill him, but to shame him beyond any chance of recovery in the eyes of the nation. Okay, and Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. You know, wait, what? Yeshua was condemned for blasphemy, but that's not the story that made it to Pilate. Pilate's been presented with an entirely different charge, that of sedition, which was a huge deal in the very paranoid Roman Empire under Tiberius Caesar. Now, the first hearing, the informal one, ended up being, you know, an elaborate fishing trip, hoping to find something that would stick. Um, the second formal hearing just presented what they came up with. In the third hearing, they evidently told Pilate that Yeshua was claiming to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah, which was a political charge. is a political title, okay? And so this is a political charge and a very serious one because only Rome could say who was and was not king of the Jews. And that king would be under the thumb of Tiberius, paying tribute and all that, as it was. The only thing close to a king of the Jews that there was was Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. But he wasn't a king. He was just a tetrarch. Between Herod the Great, king of the Jews, and Herod Agrippa, who was also made king of the Jews, the Roman Senate never appointed or acknowledged any king in Judea, Galilee, or the surrounding areas. And and I think it was like 50 or 60 years between them. I might be wrong on that. Wait, no, no, no. It'd be 40, 40 because uh, Herod Agrippa was friends with Caligula. Anyway, um, so the Roman Senate never appointed or acknowledged any king in Judea, Galilee, or the surrounding areas except those two. Um, Now, Pilate himself was not a king or even a ruler, but just a governor appointed from the equestrian class, which was 
under the senatorial class in rank. It meant he was wealthy. And he had the power to make unilateral decisions in cases of the life or death of the people of Judea. Uh, but he also had to watch his back because his friend and patron, Sejanus, was in serious trouble at roughly the same time. And in 31 of the Common Era, era he was um, executed for sedition. Um, so Pilate's position was anything but secure if that was going on at the same time. In essence, Pilate is asking Yeshua, are you declaring yourself king in violation of Roman authority? And Yeshua gives a typical ambiguous answer. An answer that really comes across as, yeah, kind of, but not the way you're thinking. And these are actually the last words he will utter before the cross, or the last recorded words he will utter before the cross. And here's where we really have to pay attention. And the chief priest accused him, it's categorio, of many things. What they probably wouldn't accuse him of was blasphemy because that wasn't a Roman crime to claim to be judge over Jewish leaders. Um, but they also wouldn't have spoken out of turn to Pilate. So he must have asked them for clarification on the charges. Now, we can only imagine what they were accusing him of based on what they'd done in the past. But suffice it to say, uh, Mark felt it was enough that they were really throwing everything they had at him. Pilate detests the Jewish leadership, well, all Jews really, and the Samaritans too. And he probably would like nothing better than to irritate them on a festival day in front of the crowd, which is not the same thing as him having an iota of compassion for Yeshua, which I don't think he did. And we can really, you know, sense the exasperation as he comes back and addresses Yeshua again. And Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. So he's facing crucifixion for sedition. Um, you know, the hearing of Yeshua before Pilate should have made for some interesting political theater, very entertaining. But Yeshua wasn't playing ball. He wasn't protesting or denying the charges or begging for mercy from the man who had absolute authority over whether he walked away from this alive or died the most shameful and excruciating death the Romans could dish out. Pilate would have loved nothing better, I'm sure, than to draw this out and put the leadership on the hot seat, making sure that everyone in the crowd was reminded that they were just nothings and nobodies in the eyes of Rome. You know, not even their most elite citizens and religious authorities were anything compared to Rome. But this is Pilate's second question. Aren't you going to say anything in your own defense? Are you listening to everything these guys are saying about you. And it was largely um, rhetorical, all right, as he had informants everywhere and counselors who would have kept him apprised on, on any strange goings on in Judea and especially in Jerusalem during Passover when uprisings were more likely to occur. Now, Pilate wasn't ignorant. He likely knew everything Yeshua had been doing and might have even chuckled at his Temple Mount antics of shaming the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. 
it wouldn't make him a fan of Yeshua or anything, uh, but it would be like watching someone you hate get made a fool out of by another person you dislike. In the days of no TV, that was the honor-shame idea of, you know, must-see TV. Now, as per Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like the lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, according to Roman law, silence was not considered an admission of guilt, but a person who refused to speak could still be convicted and condemned. And Yeshua makes no response because everything is set in motion now. He said everything that needs saying. He isn't going to try to convert Pilate or the crowd. If what they've seen with their own eyes isn't sufficient, it wouldn't do any good anyway. And remember that this was the rescue plan that Yahweh masterfully set into effect when he chose Abraham that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent despite being fatally wounded. Abraham was chosen to bring forth Yeshua. So was Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Boaz, and David. And so was Sarah, Rebekah, Leah, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and young Miriam, the betrothed version from Nazareth. Okay, They lived in order to bring forth the Messiah and for this moment in particular when he refuses to give in to Pilate's temptation to defend himself. And the, if the final temptation of Yeshua was to refuse to call down an army of angels to rescue him from the cross, then this was the second to the last temptation. Pilate wants to mess with the chief priests and elders and Maybe Pilate might decide to condemn him anyway just for sport, but the offer is definitely being held out there. You know, treat me like your savior and we'll see what we can do. Next verse. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And I'm going to stop this right here because this must have been a local custom. It is never mentioned by Josephus as being a thing, but then Josephus was born after Pilate was recalled to Rome and tried for having slaughtered Samaritans who just happened to be Roman citizens without trial, which was a very serious offense. It wasn't unheard of within the greater Roman Empire for governors and prefects and legates to do things like this in order to keep the populace happy and appear benevolent. And it made good political theater. Um, Rome was all about order, authority, and a good show. And according to Ben Witherington III, in Roman law, there were two sorts of amnesties that could be granted. One was called abolitio, and the other was indulgentia. I do not know if I'm pronouncing those right. The former involved the acquittal of someone who was not yet condemned. And Jesus would surely have fallen into that category at this juncture in the proceedings. And that's from the Gospel of Mark, a socio-rhetorical commentary, which I love. I love that whole series, actually. Um, so Abolitio was the pardon of a prisoner about whom a decision had not yet been made. Pilate has not yet sentenced Yeshua. And so he had um, the power to just say, uh, no, not going to do this because the charge but because the charge was sedition against Rome 
he was in a tricky spot. And especially if proceedings against his um, patron Sejanus were already underway or completed, or if he was under investigation, Pilate would not risk his life by offending Tiberius for a backwater, border the empire, wannabe pretender king, which is how he most likely saw Yeshua. You know, perhaps an, an eccentric thorn in the high priest side, but... You know, nothing more serious than that. But, um, yeah, Pilate had his life to, uh, to be concerned with because the Roman emperors, if, especially Tiberius and later Caligula, uh, if they thought that you were plotting against them or, uh, were working against the empire, they'd kill you as soon as look at you. Anyway, we will be back right after this break. Welcome back. Um, second half of this week's uh, Character in Context, talking about Pilate and Barabbas, the uh, beginning of Mark chapter 15. And we've been talking so far about some of the games that are going on between Pilate and the um, the chief priests. And, you know, they're going to get worse. And some of the um, troubles that Pilate's having behind the scenes that... Um, are really going to influence his decision. Not that, you know, he didn't like killing Jews because he really did. He really did. He, he hated them. He hated them. Um, anyway, so we're going to just get even more of it. Oh, geez. It's, it's an ugly story. Um, so let's keep going. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Okay, so more here than meets the eye. First, let's talk about the word for rebels. Stasiastes. Because um, it's a hapax uh, legomena, it, meaning this is the only place we see it in scripture. And um, so it's linked to the word for resurrection, which is stasis. And it's an interesting word choice because the word used elsewhere everywhere else, as well as in Josephus, to describe the social bandits of the day, you know, uh, which was uh, Lestes, translated as robbers, you know, three times in the Gospel of Mark, you know, Lestes were social bandit Robin Hood kind of types, all right, which were more commonly seen the closer you get to 70 of the Common Era and the destruction of the Temple. Um, often, you know, former landowners were rendered homeless through the really oppressive taxation by the Romans and the temple complex. And they really, these guys really did a lot of harassing of those who were well off, you know, once they lost their land. They truly were robbers. But Mark doesn't use that word for Barabbas. He uses a one-off word that is tied instead to something called the insurrection. And the Greek actually has the definite article there. Um, so Barabbas wasn't guilty of insurrection, 
but guilty of a murder committed in the insurrection. And so this was a known event at that time, and he'd been caught and imprisoned for his crime, and I assume he was already a condemned man, hoping not for abolitio, but uh, indulgen indulgencia. I do not speak Latin. Um, <laughs> so to have his sentence, you know, he wanted his sentence because he was already condemned, tossed out entirely. He was a violent rebel against Roman rule, and, you know, he was likely quite the romantic and popular figure. For those assuming that Pilate brought him forward as something who would, someone who would just discuss the festival crowd, like in, you know, um, the Passion of the Christ, um, I'm not really buying that. Maybe Pilate wanted to see if Jesus might really actually be a problem um, as a messianic figure by having the crowd decide between a popular insurrectionist and this miracle worker, you know, who might become an issue. Or maybe he just enjoyed dragging it out and infuriating the leadership publicly. Or both. You know, we just do not know for sure. Okay, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate, to do as he usually did for them. So first day of the festival, and they are coming to see Pilate, who will not be there long, to in order to secure their candidate for amnesty. The word for the crowd here is oklos, as usual, an incredibly common word in the Gospel of Mark. And we see it three times in this section alone. It is the crowd who follows, is fed, healed, delivered, dazzled, and who finally condemns. So really heavy irony here. And like I always say, we need to look for ourselves in the unnamed crowd because believe me, we are always there. Um, more on this later. Although there is no historical record of Pilate releasing a prisoner, uh, Mishnah Pesach, Pesach came, excuse me, I just, allergies. 8.6 has a specific allowance for someone to offer up a Paschal offering, um, a Passover sacrifice, uh, for a prisoner who gets released on the Passover. Okay, so next verse. And he answered them, saying, Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate is really not wanting to be used by the Jewish leadership to get rid of an enemy that is clearly more of a threat to them than to Rome. And so when they ask for the customary release of a prisoner, Pilate offers up Yeshua as an option. However, he did it with a really cheap shot, using the phrase King of the Jews for the second time. And really, by this time, he must have known that they wanted Barabbas, who was most likely somewhat of a local hero. And Pilate certainly wouldn't want to release Barabbas if there was a more harmless alternative. After all, the insurrection likely was at the expense of Roman citizens. He would undoubtedly just cause trouble again. But the deeper question was, you know, that the author of Mark is pointing to is the question that we have to ask ourselves as part of the crowd. What kind of king do you want? What kind of king do we want? 
Um, for he, Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate was extraordinarily politically discerning. All right, he wasn't fooled. Yeshua had been shaming the Jerusalem elite since he arrived in town. The Temple Mount disputations earlier in the week had brutally shamed, and by shamed, I mean damaged the standing of the appointed, you know, and self-appointed leadership of the Jewish people. The Herodians, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the chief priest had all tried to best Yeshua in order to cause him to destroy himself, but they had ended up absolutely silenced and wrecked. That's what my kids would say, they end up wrecked. Pilate would have heard, you know, all this as he had spies everywhere. Pilate would have asked them to tell the story again because, you know, it, 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 would, it amused him to no end, I'm sure. And the word envy, thonos, is the same word Paul used to describe the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. Again, we see that they delivered him up, which is paradidomi, the word for handing someone over and usually to the Gentiles to experience wrath and judgment. Pilate knows he's being used and he doesn't like it. Yeshua is nothing but the pawn in this power game as far as Pilate's concerned. Pilate's concerned about Pilate. All right. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now, I find it interesting that the chief priests actually had to stir up the crowd. Were they considering choosing Yeshua? Um, I'm thinking they'd certainly come with Barabbas in mind. The chief priest didn't just choose a random prisoner, but maybe, you know, looking at the miracle worker, they might have been considering it until they heard the whispers. This is just my take on things. Barabbas is the true Jew fighting our oppressors. That Yeshua, what has he ever done to free us from the Romans? And isn't that the sign of the true Messiah? And don't forget he spoke against the temple and said he'd tear it down. We are way better off with giving Barabbas a second chance to make the Romans and their rich friends pay. Just my guess. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Now, for the third time, Pilate speaks the phrase king of the Jews with respect to Yeshua, although no respect, you know. Um, he places the fate of Yeshua with the crowd, with us. Um, and they decided what kind of king, what kind of Messiah they wanted. It was Passover, the celebration of their liberation from Pharaoh and Egypt and slavery. It was the day they were dreaming of a new and better exodus that would rid them of their foreign overlords. They wanted revenge. They wanted to be on top again under a new Davidic king. They wanted someone a whole lot more like Barabbas. They were craving violence and vengeance. Just as so many today read Revelation focusing on a lion with a sword in his hand, 
robes drenched in the blood of his enemies instead of the lamb with the sword of the word in his mouth and his robes drenched in his own blood before the battle even begins because the battle is already over and he is victorious. But they want that violent avenger of their shame and degradation uh, and loss and not the redemption of their oppressors. So they gave their answer, you know, probably the same one we would give today. What kind of Messiah are you looking for? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. This isn't just a battle for justice, but a war over expectations and what they expected and wanted from God's Messiah. But Pilate, I imagine, isn't truly outraged by this display. You know, if we lived in modern times, we'd call him a war criminal, except he did those things during peacetime. Now, Pilate was the sort of fellow who would consider himself to be quite pious because he honored the gods of Rome and their earthly representative, Tiberius, uh, son of a god, who, uh, which of course was written on the coinage of the empire, only, you know, in Latin, of course. But the Jews, you know, speaking from the point of view of a Roman here, they claimed superlative piety while worshiping only one god, you know, as if one god is even possible. Everyone knew that the universe needed a multitude of gods to run things and wasn't the supremacy of Rome over puny little Judea and Galilee and the Transjordan proof that the Jews were nothing but atheists denying the very gods who conquered their own pathetic god who had been subjugated under the gods of Babylon, Persia, Media, Greece, and now Rome for all but a handful of the past 600 years? And, and if we want to go back, 800 is, we can put the Assyrians in that as well. Now, they refused to work on the seventh day of the week, and they claimed spiritual superiority through laziness. They refused to eat pig, food that was good enough for the gods of Rome, but not good enough for them. They refused to have the imperial cult images within the border of Jerusalem or even the banners of the Roman legions who protected them. He knew full well that they believed that Gentiles like himself were unfit to approach their conquered deity from birth. They objected to everything reasonable and yet here they are screaming for violence against a man Pilate knows is innocent. They have in one fell swoop, justified every measure of contempt that Pilate had for them. <clears throat> Dang. <sighs> and, okay, besides putting those thoughts into Pilate's head, I, you know, I made actually none of that up because we find exactly these complaints and epithets in the writings of Greco-Roman era, era philosophers, historians, playwrights, politicians, etc. You know, I would have no surprise at all if that was what was going on in Pilate's mind. The authors of the other Gospels elaborated more about what was going on, but 
you know, this would be well understood by Mark's Roman audience. And remember, we know that this was written for a Roman audience because of the usage of so many Latin loanwords and concepts that do not appear in the other Gospels. Um, but they're the context, you know, of the uh, of the audience. The Jewish believers in Rome were very familiar um, with these misconceptions of their religion and the racial slurs, and the Gentile believers had probably agreed with all of these insults at one time themselves, you know. So just think for a minute how, you know, you feel as a whatever when somebody who identifies as part of your group behaves so badly that you begin to wish that you had never been born. That's how the Jewish believers listening to the Gospel of Mark felt at this moment, I'm sure. And they all probably said they would have done differently, but that's just how we are. You know, we're all queens of denial. We're all Cleopatras. And let's just take a step back and consider how horrific this really is and what it means to be an oppressive, oppressed population and how it compromises your basic decency. Crucifixion is probably the most horrible mode of execution ever invented, at least among the ones practiced as legal forms of punishment. Burning is faster, stoning is faster, being drawn and quartered is faster. But when you've grown up watching something, it really changes you. After a while, it's like you don't even really see how terrible it is anymore. You, you just can't bear to really stop and think about it unless it's happening to someone you love. Sometimes the roads to Jerusalem were all lined with crucified men suffering for days in unimaginable ways. On top of the humiliation of being naked and powerless, you know, we want them to scream, don't do this to anyone, but this wasn't their world. They hated Rome. Releasing Barabbas satisfied their desire to strike at Rome in a way that Rome couldn't really say no to. Yeshua didn't even enter into the conversation. He was an obstacle, not the kind of Messiah anyone wanted, you know, just the kind of Messiah that everyone needed. And if you've ever seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, and please see the movie 12 Years a Slave. Um, I don't usually watch movies with sex, and there's some rape in this, and it was very horrible to watch, but it was part of it. And, and, and the hardest part was watching um the children the 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 other people on the plantation who were enslaved just walking by while the most unimaginable things happened because it was their context they were powerless they were hopeless they couldn't see any way around it and although we might condemn them um what would we do you know if this was just the context of our life all right, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scored Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You know, at this point, Pilate, I'm sure, just wants it all over with. He's lost the battle against the chief priests who were using him to take a political opponent out of their way. And, you know, there was no separation of church and state in the ancient world, and there was no break between religious and secular life, because everything was religious. <clears throat> 
The crowd does not want to appear weak, but strong. And Pilate is not willing to risk either a riot or making it look like he's turning a deaf ear to a possible rival to Caesar, and especially not one who is reported to work miracles and can draw crowds in the thousands to hear him speak. Yeshua was likely convicted on the grounds of Lex Iulia Mestasis, high treason against the empire. Scourging was, a cust was customary before the crucifixion and was performed on the back and front of the man. And it was generally so painful that the victim lost control of his bowels and bladder during the torture. According to Roman law, there was no maximum number of strokes, and if the scourger was in the mood, he could kill the victim, or at least rip him to the point that his bones and entrails were exposed, you know, uh, according to Josephus. And you can find that in Wars of the Jews 2, 21, 5, and 6, 5, 3. Mark also includes, you know, a bit more of the ironic rhetoric here by mentioning how the crowd is satisfied. Different word than used in the feeding of the five and four thousand, but with only slightly different meanings. There are, after all, different ways for a crowd to be satisfied. And after scourging, we have our third mention of paradidomi, the Greek word for hand over for wrath and judgment in the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek about, you know, 300 years earlier. And I want you to notice... <coughs> how the treatment he received from the Jews and the treatment he received from the Gentiles are mirror images of each other here. All right. Ben Witherington, you know, and I gave you that uh, before the, uh, the book that came from, uh, points out that first there was a consultation, a hearing, followed by a verdict, and then mocking and physical abuse. The author is making sure that the Jewish and Gentile believers understand that there were no heroes here except for Yeshua. The Jewish leadership was behaving just as unjust, corrupt, and cruel as the Romans were. Uh, you know, this isn't an anti-Semitic text here, but a very human one. Come to think of it, you know, there is this great article that someone sent me about a year ago about how um, power rewires the brain and I will link it in the transcript it's called power causes brain damage it was written by Jerry Usim and it is about neurological studies that prove that people in power lose the ability to emphasize with the suffering of others and we can see around the world that oppression and violence uh, do as well so you know on both sides of the Gulf, we see people who are simply unable to empathize with suffering. And this is the context of the first century Roman Empire, actually of all the Roman Empire, um, with unbelievable power and wealth on one end of the spectrum and horrific suffering on the other. The elites didn't care, and those at the bottom couldn't afford to care. And um, the audience in Rome, it's important to place this in context of uh, what was going on at this time. Persecution was ramping up and the audience, you know, Jewish and Gentile believers alike, um, knew 
that they could face the exact same treatment of arrest, hearing, condemnation, torture, and even death on a cross. And it was important for them to understand that they would be following their master if these things ended up happening, that it's what loyalty looks like. Yeshua was their master, patron, benefactor, mediator, savior, you know, etc. And it was their obligation to be absolutely loyal to him and to the gospel no matter what. I mean, they were living in the belly of the beast. They had lives that very few of us can even possibly begin to imagine, although I do have a friend from Congo who undoubtedly has a really good idea. And if you would like to um, read her story, check out the book Impossible Love by Craig and Medina Keener. Now, next week we will be moving on to the mocking of Yeshua um, and the road to Golgotha. Again, you know, really difficult stuff to study and listen to, but it's so important that we know it. It's so important that we, I don't know if appreciate it is the right word, but I think we would get, we get distracted by ridiculous stuff and just stuff that really doesn't matter if we realized if we really lived in, you know, the light of what, or in the shadow, sorry, of, of what happened at the cross and we'd pay more attention to it. I think if we paid more attention to it, we'd stop persecuting one another over just you know, doctrines that we may believe in very, very profoundly and they may be very emotionally attached for us, but oftentimes they're based on reading them into the text. Anyway, um, see you next week. <music>